there, friends. Aparnan and Charlie here, and I'm your host for today's episode of Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio, the show where anything goes, and usually does because we don't have to worry about the FCC harshing our buzz. Those narcs. Take today's story, The Taxman. Just the title by itself sounds ominous, and trust me, it only gets worse once it gets going. It starts with a totally innocent premise, tax evasion. Well, you know, innocent until you get caught. The temptation to omit numbers and cut corners has led many a taxpayer down the dark road. Even famous people can fall prey to it, and everyone knows famous people are perfect and never do anything wrong. For instance, Al Capone, Leona Helmsley, and Martha Stewart all ended up on the wrong side of the IRS. But unlike the endings that befell those poor saps, our hero today finds himself in a different kind of, shall we say, tight spot. The story was written by the American novelist, screenwriter, playwright, and actor Bruce J. Friedman. Just to give you a little context about him and why we chose his story for Too Hot, Bruce's first novel, Stern, is about a man who comes unhinged when he learns that his neighbor may have referred to his wife as a kike and maybe also noticed that she wasn't wearing underwear. Friedman has published several other novels, multiple collections of short stories, four plays, and several works of nonfiction, including Even the Rhinos Were Nymphos, which, you know, great title alert, as well as his 2011 memoir, Lucky Bruce, a literary memoir. Oh, but wait, there's more. His short story, A Change of Plan, was adapted by Neil Simon and Elaine May into the movie The Heartbreak Kid. He wrote the movie scripts for Dr. Detroit, Stir Crazy, and Splash, for which he received an Oscar nomination. And the Steve Martin film, The Lonely Guy, was based on Friedman's book. Who knows what else could be on his resume? I wouldn't be surprised if he's the guy responsible for those little packets they put in shoeboxes that say, throw away, do not eat. I mean, why make them look like salt packets if you don't want me to sprinkle them on my french fries? Don't worry, I plan on asking him about that when I speak with him later in the show. Our reader today, actress Sigourney Weaver, is well known for her roles in films since the 1980s, including Ghostbusters, Working Girl, Alien, The Ice Storm, and Avatar. She's also very tall and happens to be a very good reader of short stories, as you're about to hear. But I know what you're thinking. With such an acclaimed actress and writer combination, why is this story not going to be on the radio? Well, warning. The Tax Man is a story containing some freaky taxpayer compliance behavior, which might make you think twice about cheating on your taxes. Or maybe not, depending on how you swing. But before we get to our story, here's a word from our sponsor. The Tax Man. Locked in combat with the government over back taxes, Ullman won some points, lost a few, but could not get the revenue service to accept his plush east side apartment as a working office. <laughs> well, what do they think I use it for, Ullman asked his accountant. They don't know, said Tish. They just sense it isn't for work. Then let them come up and see it, said Ullman. I've got nothing to hide. I wouldn't do that, 
said the cautious Tish. I'd settle. No way, said Ullman. I'm entitled to have whatever kind of office I like. Send him up. In truth, Ullman worked a little in the apartment and played a lot. But what business was that of the government's? For all they knew, he slaved away in the place from dawn till midnight and never had any fun there. The plush decor? Well, he needed it to put him in the mood for hard work. Howard Hughes probably had 20 such places all over the globe, each of them a clean tax deduction. Why not one for Ullman? On the day before the agent arrived, Ullman ran around and tried to give the place more of an office-type look. He wheeled the bar into a closet, <laughs> put away his erotic statuary, and scattered paper clips, rubber bands, and file cards on the end tables. Here and there, he set up tired piles of manuscripts. The agent's name was Gowron, a fellow who kept his teeth gnashed together as though he were in severe abdominal pain. <laughs> Would you like a drink? Ullman asked him. I don't know the protocol. Not just now, said Gowron, running his finger along the edge of a handsomely designed leather couch. So this is the so-called office. Not so-called, Ullman said, just the office. Some place, said Gowron. Must have cost you a bundle to furnish it. Not really, said Ullman. Uh, you use tricks, decorators, shortcuts that make a little go a long way. Look, uh, let's not fool around. This is my office. I work here. I happen to like nice surroundings. What's the government saying, that I have to work in a drab little place? The government is saying, take it easy, said Gowron easing himself into a white, futuristic armchair and practically disappearing into the cushions. What about the bedroom? You work there, too? Omen had hoped he wouldn't get around to that. He devoted most of his money and effort to that room, paneling all four walls with mirrors and, and the ceiling as well. <laughs> He'd bought the thickest rug made and put in a heavily gadgeted bed in the great man-about-town tradition. Just his luck, the revenue agent had taken a peek at the setup on the way into the living room. I take naps back there, said Ullman. Half a dozen a day. Uh, that's my style of working. I work a little, take a nap, and work some more. You want me to stop that and not take any naps? Is that it? Let me see your calendar said Gowron. Omen could not tell if he was winning or losing with this fellow, who kept his teeth gnashed together, but otherwise had a neutral expression. He was prepared to go along with Gowron until the fellow stepped out of line, at which point he would ask that his case be turned over to higher-ups. Tish had told him he could do that. But it was difficult to tell if Gowron was stepping out of line. He probably wasn't. So Ullman handed over his daily record book. He'd worked on it for two weeks to make it look completely legitimate. <laughs> you certainly take a lot of cabs, said Gowron, flipping through the diary.
No, the government isn't saying you should walk. The government is merely making an observation. The government is cute, said Ullman. <laughs> Gowron snickered. A gray civil service exhalation of breath. <laughs> and then plowed on. Who's this guy, Berger? He asked, still studying the diary. You've had him to lunch six times, and I'm still in January. You both must be very hungry guys. <laughs> Actually, this was a break for Ullman. Most of the Berger luncheons were legitimate, and in addition, he'd called Berger, a public relations man, and put him on alert that the government might be in touch and to please back him up all the way. He was in great shape on Berger, not so good on Helwig, Danziger, and Ferris, all of whom were down for fake lunches and might not come through if Gowron checked them out. Why don't you call Phil Berger and ask him if we talked business all those times or not, said Ullman. Hey, I'll give you his number. That's all right, said Gowron making a few notations in his record book and then putting it away. Let's take a break. I know about these calendars. Everybody bullshits their way through them. You probably just got finished padding yours the second I got here. How about that drink you mentioned before? Gowron loosened his collar, kicked out his legs and made himself comfortable. Omen winced at the thought of this fellow with his two-bit civil service suit getting comfortable on his fine furniture, but he rushed to make a drink all the same. If it ever got down to a pitched battle, he could say that Gowron drank on the job. You go to a lot of restaurants, said Gowron. Try a place called Andy's. Terrific Parmigiana, and you get unlimited pasta and fruit for the same price. You get out of there, you feel like you're gonna bust. Omen could just about imagine what kind of place Andy's was, with its all-you-can-eat policy on pasta and fruit. He almost threw up at the thought of it. But he made believe he was jotting down the name and address for future reference. I don't care how many restaurants you know, he said, joining Gowron in a drink. You can always use another one. <laughs> Must be nice work you do, said Gowron. Going to all those lunches and then sitting around in a place like this to do your work with this view. I really do work up here, said Ullman, still defensive. I just happen to like nice surroundings. I've worked in flop houses and now I figure I deserve this. Hey, said Gowron, waggling a finger, we're taking a break, right? Right, said Ullman, relaxing slightly. You must meet a lot of nice people, said Gowron, a lot of good-looking chicks. That's right, said Ullman. They do sort of drift into the theater if they're good-looking. What do you do, said Gowron? You get these thoughts, and then you sort of write them down on paper? <laughs> Something like that, said Ullman. That's nice work, said Gowron. Hey, 
he said, looking at his watch and springing to his feet. I'm supposed to meet my new girl. Can I use your phone? Sure, said Olman. Uh, if it would make it more convenient, she can pick you up here. The drink had evidently made him feel a bit more convivial than he realized. That'd be terrific, said Gowron. She'd love to see a place like this. Gowron gave the girl the address over the phone, Ullman wondering how he could speak through those gnashed and battered teeth. He called the girl Little One, and Ullman figured this was internal revenue style, you know, romantic internal revenue style. He could just about imagine the girl. Actually, she wasn't that bad. For one thing, she probably should have been called Big One. She was a heavy-set girl, probably German, with languid, somewhat dazed eyes and, and a, an attractively slow-rolling style of movement. From the moment she showed up, she slowed everything in the room down. It took a few beats for Ullman to realize how attractive she was, and when he did, he was a little annoyed. For one thing, it had to change his view of Gowrin. He'd put the fellow into some kind of cramped and petty second-rate internal revenue slot. If that was his proper category, what was he doing with Ingrid? Also, it made Ullman look bad. He worked in the theater. He was supposed to be the one with the Ingrids. The thing about this girl, said Gowron, who suddenly looked a bit dashing, is that uh, she'll do anything. Nothing bothers me, said Ingrid. <laughs> do something crazy, said Gowron, with a heavy-handed wink at Ullman. Slowly, lazily, the girl stood on her hands, using Omen's expensive bookshelves to balance herself. Her skirt poured over her head, Omen dazzled by the erotically chunky spectacle. It means nothing to me, said Ingrid, lightly regaining her feet after just the right amount of time and with a single movement getting her blonde hair to fall back over her shoulders. The doorbell rang and Ullman braced himself. More Ingrid's? It was the dry cleaner, after Ullman's dirty suits. Ullman had them ready in a bundle and he tossed them to the fellow. And as the cleaner sorted out, Gowron said, hey, let's have some fun and motioned to Ingrid. She took off her blouse, undid her bra, and thrust a heavy breast at the startled dry cleaner's face. Say, what kind of party is this? Ingrid allowed him to enjoy it a moment, and then dismissed him with a light kiss on the forehead. <laughs> She's something, said Gowron with a chuckle. Whatever you like, said Ingrid with an almost bored snap of her fingers. I do it. <laughs> Yet I feel sorry for the kid, said Gowron, when the puzzled dry cleaner had left. They're going to send her back. 
to Germany. He spoke almost as though Ingrid were not in the room. You said you'd get me girls, said Ingrid, removing her bra entirely now as though it were an annoyance. I'm working on it, said Gowron. I like it with girls. Listen, said Gowron. How's the grass situation up here? The question put Ullman on the spot. He had some, but what if he produced a few joints and Gowron slipped the cuffs on him, booking him not only on tax evasion, but also on a drug rap? <laughs> Maybe that's what Ingrid's presence was all about. On a simpler level, if he brought out grass, it would be clear-cut evidence that the apartment was more than just an office. Still, a certain inevitability began to surround the evening. He went and got some. From the second Ingrid had walked in, he'd felt a little stoned anyway. <laughs> Gowron seized his joint and began to suck on it elaborately in the style of the suburban experimenter. More predictably, Ingrid declined, saying, I don't need this. It's a waste of time. Come. What do you want to do? She took a seat between them on the couch, cradling both Omen's and the tax collector's head against her giant bosom and saying, poor babies. <laughs> Omen wasn't sure if it was the grass or a certain drugged aroma that came from the girl's flesh, but there was a jump in time, like a some minutes or, or perhaps a large part of an hour that fell out of the evening like a skipped piece of film. And the next thing he knew, the three were standing on his Swedish rug, arms around each other, none of them wearing clothes. <laughs> a little music, the tax collector whispered to Ullman. Gowron's voice in a whisper had none of the reedy internal revenue style to it. It was surprisingly continental. As Omen made adjustments on his stereo set, he became aware of a sharply attractive fragrance which he took to be Ingrid's Germanic cologne. Then too, there was the possibility that it might be Gowron's aftershave, a subtle concoction which Omen never would have dreamed was favored by federal tax agents. Selecting an album somewhere between hard rock and the big band sound of the 40s, Omen turned and for a panicky moment saw that the couple was gone. But then he tracked them into the bedroom and found them on his heart-shaped bed. A hundred versions of them reflected in his craftily arranged wall and ceiling mirrors. Omen slipped in beside the couple, who had begun tentatively without him, and soon caught their rhythm. He and the tax collector wandering across the girl's heavy duned body, Ingrid not bored, but somewhere beyond them as though she were a huge piece of experiential statuary stretching herself voluptuously in the sunlight. The unspoken rules were that Ullman and the taxman were to make love to her, but that both were to occupy separate zones and never to make contact with one another.
until one moment, deep in the night, when Omen heard the revenue man whisper, over this way. And it seemed natural to alter the rules somewhat and finally to abandon them altogether. And then, in an even deeper chamber of the night, the girl was gone, and Omen could recall no effort on either his or Gowron's part to keep her there. In the morning, Omen awoke with an awareness that he had not slept very long. At the same time, he felt none of the staleness that generally went with lack of sleep. A moment later, Gowron, fully dressed except for the thin civil service necktie, stood above him with an open can of condensed milk, wanting to know if it was fresh enough to use with his coffee. I think it's okay, said Ullman. He brushed his teeth then, put in his contact lenses, and showered, deliberately keeping his thoughts vague in the stream of hot water and preferring not to confront just yet the central new fact of his existence, that no matter how he sliced it, he had spent half the night in the tax collector's arms. <laughs> After changing the sheets and making the bed, he dressed, making sure everything he wore was spotlessly new and clean, and then he appeared in the breakfast alcove. Get some sleep, said Gowron, sipping his coffee and rifling through Ullman's daily record book, making a note or two. Not bad, said Ullman. What happened to your girlfriend? Nice kid, huh? Said Gowron. She had an appointment. You want to start now or get some breakfast first? I got some questions about April 1968. Your figures don't add up. All right, hold it right there, said Ullman, pouring some juice and then slamming down the container. I don't think you quite realize what's happened. You know, I just don't do this. This is a, a very big thing to me. I've never done this and I, in my life. I won't kid you. I, I've, thought, I've had the thought a few times, and, and maybe I even knew that, that someday I'd get around to it and give it a try, but I've never actually done it before, never even come near it. This is a very strong, new thing for me. I haven't even begun to assess the effect of it yet. I may not even be able to function normally when it hits me. My whole personality could be out the window. For Christ's sake, I haven't done anything like this since Roger Lacey in Bunk 9 at Camp Deerfleet, and that was nothing compared to last night. That was just a harmless little cupcake. For all I know, this may turn out to be the single most shattering thing I've ever done in my 30s. I may get a goddamn nervous breakdown over last night, and you want to casually jump in and review calendar notes for April 68. That's right, said Gowron, <laughs> munching on a toasted English muffin and turning the pages of Ullman's diary until he came to the page he wanted. Now, who is this fellow Benziger? And what do you fellows find to talk about three times a week at expensive French restaurants? Bitch, said Ullman. 
and was shocked by the unmistakably female hiss that accompanied the outburst. Bruce, this is Aparna calling from Too Hot for Radio. Well, how can I help? I just have a couple of questions about the story and then just about sort of writing and, and your career in general. So I might just jump in. This is related to the tax man, but I have to ask, were you, did this story come from any grain of real life? Like, are you represented in it in any way or is any of it drawn from actual experience? Well, it began uh, with a surprising and unsettling visit from a tax man who I was living in a one-room apartment in the East 60s. Uh, he showed up, knocked on the door, showed up, which was, I owed the uh, government some money, but not that much. Uh, so I was very uh, thrown by this visit. Uh, he seemed to take an exceptional interest in the way I lived. He walked around and picked up this little statuette and looked at a painting I had on the wall. He seemed overly curious and asked me about when I could pay my bill. And uh, that was it. But but again, I, I was unsettled by this. It seemed unusual, but that was the end of it. However, I began to think about it. I wondered what would happen if he uh, stayed a bit longer and uh, became sort of friendly. The story went from there. I, li- I sort of liked it, and I sent it to Harold Hayes at Esquire, uh, who had bought many of my stories, mm-hmm. but not this one because uh, he had an aversion about any tinge of the homosexual in his magazine. So uh, that was a little disappointing, but Rust Hills, who had been the fiction editor of Esquire, had left to start his own magazine called Audience. And uh, I sent it to him uh, and he bought it immediately. And that's the story of the tax man, except <laughs> I had a chilling phone call from the IRS. Uh, and the man said, I understand you've uh, covered our department. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what was coming, but I think he was sort of teasing me. I guess it's good to know the IRS has a sense of humor. Well, yes, I so. <laughs> so in your work, you generally don't shy away from subject matter that might possibly offend people. Have you ever worried about anything you've written maybe going too far? Or have you ever received, you know, mail from people saying maybe they, they didn't like how far you went in, in some of your work? 
Well, I worried that I hadn't gone far enough. Mm. I like to press the buttons of sensitivity, and that was sort of key in my in my writing. I like the uncomfortable. But there was one story that went to the New Yorker, and I remember that uh, rejection, very polite. Mm-hmm. But they they said they found the story unpleasant. Well, that was the end of my contact with the New Yorker because, you know, the unpleasant was was important to me. I didn't want to write uh, bland uh, stories. So I went about my business, and I always felt comfortable uh, in the writing short stories as much as a writer can be comfortable. And I had I had one last question. It's a, kind of a little bit more informal, but in, in your memoir, uh, Lucky Bruce, you mentioned that uh, at one point you warned your friend Mario Puzo not to call his book The Godfather, did you have alternate suggestions for him? Oh, I had no other su- suggestion, but I <laughs> thought it was a sort of mealy-mouthed uh, uh, title. I didn't know who would want to read a book <laughs> like that. Now, if I knew what The Godfather meant, uh, I wouldn't have had that reaction. But yes, that was uh, my terrible advice <laughs> to uh, Pooza. Well, Two Hot Listeners, that's all we have for now. We'll be back soon with another story the FCC won't let us air on the radio. Until then, if you like the show, please post a glowing review on iTunes and tell your friends to listen. What other things do they have to do? And don't forget to write to us and let us know what you think or if you have a story idea to share. You can send us a message on Twitter at Selected Shorts or our Selected Shorts Facebook page. As always, check out our website at selectedshorts.org. And hey, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss one hot second of unseemly content. Our show is produced by Jennifer Brennan and Mary Shimkin. Our podcast producer and editor is Colleen Pellisier. Selected Shorts Too Hot for Radio is recorded at Symphony Space in New York City. Our theme song is by Poddington Bear. Our host is recorded with the generous support of CUNY at City University of New York Radio Station with sound engineering by Sarah Fishman. 